invite you to turn in your Bibles. If you have one handy, there should be some on the end of the pew. Uh, if you need one, to uh, Psalm 4. We're going to look at the fourth Psalm today and see what God has to teach us uh, from it. As you turn there, uh, I would mention that there certainly seems to be a link between this psalm and the psalm before it. The third psalm that we heard about from our assistant pastor Harrison Hatfield last week as he preached through that third psalm with the context being that David is now on the run from his own son who has taken up a group of people and turned against uh, David and his kingdom and his leadership We had that context last week when we heard about God being a shield for us. As we look at these verses this week, I want us to think about this topic of God as our great good. As God as our great good. And finding our ultimate goodness, the ultimate goodness of life in Him. That's what I think we'll see in these verses. We really just want to look at verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 4. So I invite you to turn with me to that place today and stand with me as well as I read aloud these uh, three verses and consider what it means for God to be your good and my good. Psalm 4, verse 6 through 8. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than when they have, than when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. You may be seated. Let me pray for us again. Oh, Father, we do pray today that you would come and take your word that we desperately need to hear from regularly to be strengthened by. You would use it in a particular way today to point us away from finding our hope in secondary secondary sources of good. And Lord, let us see you as our ultimate good and the one through whom all secondary goods come. Father, we pray this way in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've shared in the past a little bit about some of the Peters family trips. About ten years ago, I know I've mentioned before, Patience and I, my wife Patience and I, attempted to take a whirlwind trip of Europe on the cheap. And this is a new one that I may not have shared from that journey. We, uh, we have division of responsibilities. Patience was in charge of handling, arranging the nice, quaint, bed and breakfast for the places where we were going to stay more than one day. And I was in charge of arranging the train travel, including some overnight sleeping on the train as we were in motion, trying to pack as much as we could into a few days. Off we went, leaving one afternoon, arriving the next day, as it were, in London to start our trip. We wanted to get a day in London, but didn't have much time, so we went ahead right into that, not having a lot of rest or sleep from the airplane flight, with the idea being at 9 o'clock, we'll board a train that'll take us up into northern Scotland, and indeed we did at 9 o'clock, getting ready to settle in for 
rest, to get comfortable, to enjoy some restful time, only to find out about an hour after we had begun to travel that the train was stopping. And we were getting off of the train onto a train platform. We said, I thought we were going all night up to Scotland. I said, well, the next train will be back to pick you up about 3.30 in the morning. This platform that we were stopping on was not some big, elaborate train station. It was basically a concrete slab, or several of them, out in the middle of some area. We didn't know really even where we were. It was probably about 50 degrees out, and we only had some sweatshirts and so forth that we had packed with us. And what's more, there were bands, groups, we'll call them, of inebriated teenagers and college students roaming around the area for no apparent purpose. Wasn't exactly the comfortable spot to kind of settle in and get three or four hours of rest, especially when one of us was a little bit upset with the other one about the travel arrangement and wasn't in a snuggly mood. I can't think of too many other times in my life where I really wanted, I really desired just a place to lay down, just a place to get comfortable, to be at peace, to have some sense of security, some place that I knew, some place I could have comfort in. We look at these verses today and begin to think about some of these themes that, that come out of these verses of, of satisfaction, of security, even of joy and safety. We realize it doesn't necessarily help us to be at home on our own bed, laying down on our own pillow to deal with those things. We can all be laying our head down there and have concerns, have burdens, have things that are upsetting us, have worries, anxieties that seep in and keep us from getting rest. So it doesn't ultimately matter where we are, but it matters who we are in. And I have mentioned in recent weeks, and it just keeps coming back to my mind, I'll remind us again of what Augustine famously said. He said that God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. That's true today as we look at these verses, and if you want to follow along in your bulletin, I know we've got a new bulletin format. You can flip towards the back of it. It's an area for you to take notes. We did want to give a little bit more room for sermon notes and so forth with this format, but you'll see the main idea of these verses. It's pretty straightforward. Only God can show us good. But if we're wise, if we're thinking clearly, if we're thinking straight, we should seek to find our ultimate good in Him. There's no other place that we can ultimately root that. Now, it's interesting, as, as verse 8 of the passage I read shows us, the psalmist kind of uses this issue of sleep, of rest, of security, as a sort of barometer of where we are in finding our good in God. And so if that's the barometer, we certainly can envision different storm fronts in our life, if you will, that Roll in, and when they roll in, push against us, finding our rest, finding our security, finding our good in God. Certainly trials do that. We have a 
big business deal that we were counting on going through and it collapses, or we have a situation with a child that we're really wrestling with, or we have a loss of someone in our family, those kind of things push against our understanding of God and His goodness to us. Not just trials, though. A discontentment seeps in as well. We're dissatisfied with the things in our life, and our hearts tend to move that way, don't they? Uh, we took a road trip recently. I was mentioning to some even this morning, and when I was growing up, it was high technology to be able to have a Sony cassette Walkman in the car. Of course, my older sister was the only one who had one, and she hogged it the whole way from Chicago to Pennsylvania on our standard road trip. Well, we've got multiple screen DVD players in our minivan now, and yet somehow the youngsters get dissatisfied. That would have been a dream for me to be able to watch a movie all the way along the road. It's our propensity to get discontent with looking to God's goodness. And then ultimately, that feeds, if we think about it, if we think about areas of struggle in our life, that discontentment feeds our succumbing to temptation. It propels us, it moves us to seek other sources of good, to find our highest good in other things besides the Lord. And so that's what we want to talk about for just a few minutes today. And what I want us to see is what the psalmist tells us pretty straightforwardly, that we should see God as the the really only true source of our good. We should see that, and then we should also savor it. We should love the fact that we can find our good in God. And then there's also going to be some fruit from that. We'll kind of end up where we began, the security, the joy, the hope that comes if we begin to look to God as our ultimate good. Let's talk about that today and start with the first thing. Verse 6 shows us that God is the source of our good. David, the psalmist writing this, is tossing out this question. He says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Who's going to show good to David the king? And we may have the same question in our lives. In fact, that's what drives ultimately our discontentment, as I said, and our running to other sources of good. Is that question lingering in the back of our mind? Is God really good? Is he really going to take care of me, provide what I need, be there in the way that I need him to? We certainly see that in times of trouble, you might say. And this is a situation of trouble that David is in. Again, we think this is probably meant to be understood with Psalm 3, and that he's on the run from Absalom. So you can see even his own men, perhaps his own heart, saying, God, where, when are you going to show some good to me? Lost my kingdom. My son is gathering forces against me who will show us some good. So times of trouble, we see that. But David also knows that in times of triumph, we can be just as prone to that. After all, it was when David was at the pinnacle of his kingdom, had all the success before him, had all that the the, uh, kingdom of Israel could be extended to. It was at that point where he sinned with Bathsheba and then with the murder of Uriah. So he knows that it's not just times of trouble that can challenge our picture of God as our source of good. It's times of triumph as well. Those times we can become distracted also. Where are you and I today? Should we think about God being the source of our good? Deuteronomy 
chapter 8, it's funny, you know, some things in the Bible, they're, you know, sometimes hard to understand, and I'll, I'll admit it, I'm a, I'm a pastor, and sometimes, you know, they're hard to work through. You've got to try to understand what they meant in their context and apply them over into our life today. Some of them, though, you read and you think, wow, this could be just written yesterday. It's so fitting for our life. If you have a minute, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you have a Bible, I meant to say, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And let's look at verse uh, 6, really through verse 14. Deuteronomy is back towards the beginning of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So it's right just a little bit earlier than Psalms. And Deuteronomy 8, verse 6, this is written. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land in which stones are iron and out of the hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God. For the good land he has given you. Sounds like a good place, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like a lot of what we enjoy in our time in this place that we live. Read with me verse 11 then. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, which I commanded you today. Lest you, when you've eaten and are full of and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then jump down with one more verse, verse 17. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me all this wealth. We enjoy a lot of goodness, don't we? I don't think God's looking to zap us if we forget to see at every single point that He is the source of that good. But He certainly desires for us to give praise to Him. And He tells us it's good for us to see that He's the one that brings all of those things to us. And it's dangerous to our soul to think that they come from ourselves. Look at the second half of verse 6 there, back in Psalm 4. Second half of verse 6, back in Psalm 4. What's the solution to this? How do, we, how do we move beyond these false sources of our good? It says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. What does David turn to when he's having trouble seeing what's good when he's having trouble seeing it? What would he turn to, I think, urge us to turn to when he would run away to false goods? He says, the Lord's face shining upon us. The beautiful thing that God in his grace has shined upon us. We all know the face can make a difference, can it? Maybe you've walked up to somebody at some point at a business meeting or some social setting. It's the first time you meet them, and you walk up and you shake their hand, and instead of that nice, warm, southern hospitality smile, you get a scowl, kind of a frown on your face, on their face. It affects the way you interact with them, right? Think about the opposite. Even today we've got 
some little ones, some brand new born ones that are here at the church. And you see when a mom walks in with that new little one, it's as if she's handing out gift cards to the other ladies for the nearest nail salon. Everyone flocks over to that little pumpkin seat. Why? Trying to look at the feet? You're trying to look at the arms? You're trying to look at the pumpkin seat? No, you want to see that child's face. And everybody walks away smiling. These verses are reminding us to have the light of God's face shine upon us is a great blessing. He's the source of all our good. Do we believe that today? Second thing we see in these verses is that we should actually savor that good. And I've already been sort of alluding to that. But look with me at verse 7. You'll see the same idea laid out. It says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. What's grain and wine about? It's just a symbol of prosperity, a blessing, of enjoying. It could be whatever you want to classify it as. But what the psalmist is saying is that we can see God through those good things. It's good to thank Him for those things. But ultimately, we want to look past all those things and see that He, God Himself, relationship with Him, is more valuable, there's more joy in that, even than the good things that he gives to us. Do we believe that today? What's our most fulfilling earthly joy? Maybe for you it's as simple as a really good cup of coffee. Maybe it's maybe you really love that action-packed new movie that's out. Maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe it's your children's success or their love and affection. Maybe it's a fulfilling discussion with someone you love or are close to or a good friend. Maybe it's a good workout. You enjoy being able to get out and enjoy a good workout. Maybe it's marital intimacy. Maybe it's a job success. Whatever those things are that you say, these things are really good and I love them These verses are reminding us we should pray and ask God that we would have exceedingly more desire for Him, for Him even above all of those things. That's why we gather together here each week. I mean, what are we doing here? What's the purpose of getting together like this? There's a number of things, fellowship and enjoying time with one another. But part of what we're hopefully doing as a body is saying, We need help. We need a reminder at least once a week, if not more regularly, to savor God, to love God as the highest good. That's what we're doing here. Well, if you're thinking through some of this and processing through it, the next question that that might be on your mind or maybe that's been lurking back there from the beginning, and it's an important one, so we're going to talk about it, is what about when things aren't good in my life? What about when tragedy comes or difficulty comes or constant, regular, chronic struggles come? What do we do? Well, probably not time to address that, that in its entirety, but I want to give you one uh, picture. When friends of ours, uh, four or five years ago, I guess it was now, Uh, They moved into Tuscaloosa. We had known them from St. Louis. Uh, Deb and Josh were their name. Deb I had met my very first few days 
in my undergraduate time. It was a really important time for me spiritually, and she had helped connect me in with a group of believers that really helped me grow spiritually during that, that time. So she's a good friend of, of mine. They had moved down to Tuscaloosa. Her husband was the, uh, he's moved on now to another job, but he was the assistant coach for the girls' volleyball team there down at, uh, at Alabama. And we had heard before they came that their son, Noah, had a degenerative condition. He was not yet a year old. At about six months along, they had identified this and that he was not likely to live, uh, barring God just breaking in with a miracle. I remember going to Children's Hospital because they were up here in Birmingham a good bit to get treatments and care for him. And I still remember talking to Deb and watching her through tears try to describe the medical things. We'll talk medical terms to try to keep back the emotion. If we can keep talking medical terms, maybe we won't have to deal with what's coming. And standing there watching her husband, Josh, stroke the head of their little boy. And he would look to their boy, Noah, and then he would look off in the distance. And he would look back to that boy And it was as if he was conditioning himself, trying to find a way to continue looking at his son who he loved, but he couldn't handle the thought of losing him. So he'd look off in the distance to deal with it. Well, the Lord took Noah home. The Lord took Noah home on his first birthday. His very first birthday took him home. And I remember, and I'll let Josh's words speak for this, I remember going to the funeral. And, of course, you're thinking, well, what, what do you say? How do you encourage people? What do we do with this idea that I'm talking about today? It seems absurd to suggest that God is good and His goodness is at work in our lives when you have that kind of loss and that kind of suffering. And I know some in here have tasted pills as bitter as that. Josh stood up in the funeral and declared praise to God. He said, we praise God. We thank God for the goodness. And I'm sure it wasn't easy. I'm sure it's a thing they've wrestled with. I'm sure it's torn them apart at various points. But he got up and said, you know, God has been good to us to give us this son for how long that he has. And I praise God they have since had another boy and he's doing well. not easy to savor God's goodness at all times. It's not easy to do it in times of great struggle. It's also not easy to do it sometimes when everything's going really well. Both things push very hard against us savoring all that the Lord is. Well, the Psalms give us this promise. They give us this promise not only that we're going to find life and hope if we can pray and ask God to allow us to get to that place, but that we will actually see the face of God as we move that way. And so the third point I want us to see is verse 8, is contained in verse 8, and that is just that when we see God as a source of our good, when we begin to savor Him as our good, then we will be able to find satisfaction and security in that good. It says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep, For you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. As I said, we come back to kind of the 
place that we started on. Certainly know that all the things I've just described push against God's goodness, but many of us are, maybe we wouldn't quantify, we wouldn't say in this or that area, I'm upset with God's goodness, but we have a heart, a posture of anxiety, a posture of fear about life. We're worrying constantly about things, and guess what that tells us? It's like a light on the dashboard in your car that tells you if you find yourself, you can't rest, you can't sleep, anxiety and worry are there, okay, backload it now. If, that's, if that light is showing you that, then it tells you something is wrong inside the engine of your spiritual life and my spiritual life. And believe me, I'm there with worry and anxiety. And these verses remind us that go back and look for those places. Where have I not been finding my good in the Lord? If I would seek to do that, if I'd turn from secondary goods and I'd turn towards the Lord, He would give me peace. He would give me safety and security. He promises to do the same for us. I like what uh, Stanley Jones wrote down. I don't really know much about him, but I thought this was fitting. It's on your bulletin, I believe. He says, worry is fear's extravagance. And then listen to this, especially any in the accounting field. It extracts interest on trouble before it comes due. It constantly drains the energy of God that God gives us to face daily problems. It's therefore a waste. Then he says this, and, and ask yourself if this is, if, if you picture yourself this way, and I ask myself as well, I'm inwardly fashioned for faith, not for fear. I live better by faith and confidence than by fear, doubt, and anxiety. In anxiety and worry, my being is gasping for breath. These are not my native air. In faith and confidence, I breathe freely. These are my native air. One other commentator summed it up this way. He said, uh, concerning the things that we tend to worry about, the things that push against us seeing God as good, our fears, he says 40% of the things we worry about, probably never going to happen. 30% of the things are in the past, and there's no way to change them now. 12% of the things are criticisms by others that probably aren't really true. 10% of our worries about our health, and when you worry, you increase stress and you make your health worse, he says. And then he says 8%, of course, this is all just fabricated, but 8% might actually be things that you might want to think about and put some attention to. We think about these verses today and the goodness of our God. We're reminded again. That in those places where we question who will show us any good, or in those places where we turn aside to secondary goods, we should cry out, verse 6 says, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Show us more of you. Let us find our good in that. And then verse 7, You put more joy in my heart. Ask God that he would put that joy in our hearts. And then we will find that we will experience peace and rest in him. I'll close with a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. How does all this relate to our Redeemer, to our Savior? It says this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All this comes to fulfillment 
All this comes to fullness in Him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how we do praise You for Your abounding goodness and how we ask, Lord, that You would cause us who are so prone to turn to secondary joys as our highest good or to find ourselves pushed away by trials and difficulties from even looking to You for our good. Oh, Lord, would You enable us to find our hope in life in You, to find our goodness in You. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.